Hey, friends, family, friends who are family, fwaf, and the odd listener that somehow is listening that doesn't know me. Uh, today's episode is with uh, my bestie, Matt Thomas. Um, we have so much in common. Uh, both teachers, both love baseball, uh, similar moral codes. Um, I think our taste in movies might be slightly a little bit, a little bit different, but uh, Matt, Matty's a great guy, and I think you get to hear that. Um, we talk some politics. We talk about baseball. We talk about YouTube. We talk about um, teaching during a pandemic and 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 holidays. Um, and we we talk a lot about family. So in this episode, Matt talks about how his uh, yearly Christmas letter to his friends and family is essentially a love letter to his wife. And I've I've said before, I think overtly. Um, each podcast episode that I make is kind of like a love letter to whoever I'm, uh, I'm podcasting with. So Matthew, this is my love letter to you, which is a love letter to your wife, which is getting weird. It's Rick's podcast. So, Maddie, welcome back to the show. Um, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and all the rest. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Rick. And Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for having me back as well. Um, yeah, we're just uh, you know laying low. We put the Christmas decorations away today. Tree came down. Uh, the outside lights are still on, so it still looks festive from the street. But uh, but in here, it's business as usual again. Well, that's good. Speaking of business as usual, Christmas time always means in my household receiving the Thomas family Christmas letter. And uh, it is a massive joy of ours. I, I just love getting the letter in the mail. Amanda almost always reads it out loud to us. And uh, this year was no different. You're a tremendous writer. And honestly, like I I'm sure all of your friends and family love getting your letter, but we especially love it. Well, I, <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm grateful to hear that. And I appreciate it. Um, you know, it's uh, something that um, I, I'm in taking increasing pride in doing, and I, I want to do it well. And it it's, uh, warms my heart to know that people are, are enjoying it and getting a chuckle out of it. And and the the notion that you're you know making an event out of it, sitting down and reading it out loud, um, is uh, is very flattering. So thank you very much for that. No problem. It's fun. Like you do a great job. It's hilarious. You paint your family in perfect way because like it's very representative of who they are and i don't know it just it cracks us up every year the hardest part is writing about myself i can i can write about my kids for hours right i could write you know a, a short story or a novel on them and uh it's it's trying to make my life interesting sound interesting um and being crossing i don't want to cross the line and become too self-deprecating because then uh, when Christina, Christina always does like a once over for an edit just to, for readability, um, uh, and, and to make sure that the jokes hit. And, uh, if I'm too self-deprecating, she'll often insist that I clean that up, but otherwise I could write about the, the kids forever. And I always sort of now, cause this is like the 10th or 11th time I've written one, maybe more than that, actually. Um, you know, the, the part about Christina is always a bit of a love letter to my wife. Um, so that's, I like to sneak that in there. It plays that way every time too. I'd have a hard time writing about myself in that same way. I, like 
you're really breaking the wall and talking about yourself in the third person is fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's not natural, but I, again, I just try to be self-deprecating. Right. And I just try to like, what, what sums me up. Um, and it's not even necessarily you know, the things I'm proud of or the things that I think I've achieved in the year. It's just like what, uh, almost what, what typifies my sort of daily routine and then how can I communicate that? Well, I think self-deprecation is exactly how you do that because that's literally what you do <laughs> Yeah, all the time. Yeah. It's, it, I always said that uh, self-deprecation works because I don't know any comebacks. So I can, I can rip <laughs> myself. And I got no yeah, but uh, retorts. Pick a fight. You know, you can win. Uh, I, think, think of the, I think of the comebacks later, but by then it's too late. The, the letter's in the mail. <laughs> uh, you know, this year, I, I, in this episode, really, I've been feeling weird just about the whole uh, life side project that I almost undertook, um, talking about my little foray into politics. And I wanted to talk about it with you, and I wanted to bring Alan into this as well, and I will. Um, yeah, it was it was wild that I was going to jump into provincial politics and you were going to be one of the ones right there to help me. And uh, I'm really glad I didn't, I didn't jump into it, but I thought that would be a great topic for us to discuss today because Holy shit. It it was almost, it almost happened and it almost, (laughs) it almost went nuts really quick. Yeah. Yeah. um, I just, I, you know, when you, uh, when you let us know that, um, you know, you'd, you'd approached uh, Miss French and, um, wanted to interview her and then her party reached out to you and showed some interest in you. Um, you know, Christina and I were both elated because, you know, we know you well, we've known you for years now. And, um, you know, the, the things that we like about you are the things that we've like, we would love about a, a politician. So, um, it seemed like a natural fit, but it's also something that, you know, it's, it is an entirely new lifestyle. It is an entirely new perspective on how to conduct yourself and so if if you weren't you know a hundred percent ready even if you were 95 percent ready that five percent would would not you know it would grow but um you know the the fact is is that um i think you know as a teacher you would have had credibility i think that uh you know as a person out on the street canvassing you'd have the ability to, to put people at ease and and uh to to um, to listen and, and, um, you know, those, those qualities are, they're not going away. So if, if one day we circle back around and you decide that you're ready, you know, we will be too on this end. Cause you know, we continue to, to, uh, love you and support you and, and think that you could have done the job well. Um, and I think we, things got, got big quickly and, um, you know, um, it, we probably could have provided a little more support and, and preparation and it just, you know, the way it all timed out, it, it just, we weren't able to um, see it through uh, at this point. Let's like, time it out a little bit. Cause it did, it, it happened fast. And like, yeah. I guess it started with uh, a neighborhood friend of mine, her name is TJ and she is the assistant to Miss Jennifer French, the Oshawa member of parliament from the NDP former teacher that you'd mentioned. And um, she had mentioned to me, TJ in the summer that I'd be good in politics. And I just kind of like, just kind of laughed. Right. Like, I don't know. I didn't, I'd thought about it before, but it was weird to hear someone else say, Hey, you know, you'd be good at it. But then in October 
she brought it up again and said that NDP Pickering was doing that active search, Pickering Uxbridge, looking for a candidate. And she mentioned it to me again and said, I want you to consider this. Like, you should think about this. You'd be really good. And then I mentioned it to you. I gave you a ring. And it's funny because I love how the details pile up, but I had just gotten new AirPods and I didn't know how to use them properly. (laughs) So I'm talking with you and I told you what I was thinking about doing and you got super excited. Guilty. You were so positive right away. Um, Might've pushed me, might've pushed me in a direction more as well. Like it might've, you know, given me more air under my wings. I was like, okay, this is great. If Matt's excited, this is exciting, you know, Mm -hmm. but, uh, my wife had just gotten home and I was, I was going to, uh, you know, chat with her more about it as well. And I, you and I were finished talking because you're like, well, I'm at home and I'm like, yeah, my wife just got home. So we're both just kind of hanging up, but you're not great with your tech and (laughs) you're, you're still sorting out your iPhone a little bit. And I I think you forgot to hang up because you were you were getting out of your car and it didn't switch over. You know what I mean? Like you just didn't finish it. I didn't hang up because I didn't know how to hang up on my headphones. Yeah. And what wound up was me and my wife could eavesdrop on your conversation with Christina while you told her what I was going to be doing. And I could hear how excited she got. You were both so ridiculously excited for me. It was really uplifting, but, um, I think later on it was like a point of like some of my, some of my nerves came from that too. Like, Oh my God, like this is such a big deal. And these smart people are excited for me. Well, I think, you know, just to, <laughs> we were very excited. And, and we, um, it, I, I think, you know, if, if that conversation, if, if being a fly on the wall in our kitchen um, gave you, the, you know, if, if any positive comes out of it, you understand how, how loved and supported you are uh, here. But, um, you know, it, it, I, th- I felt like the whole thing was at that point in time, the way you phrased it was that things were sort of exploratory in that, um, you know, they, they wanted to put you forward as a candidate or at least consider you to put forward as a candidate. And, um, you know, that I, I have a little bit of an understanding of how the political system works, being a teacher um, that teaches civics. <laughs> you know, I should have some idea. <laughs> so... You know, I I knew that there was a, a long road to hoe here, and it wasn't going to be something that we were going to be able to just make the decision. And you're going to be sitting at Queens Park like there was there was a lot that was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, we, we were happy to be be there along the way and, and to be be supportive. Um, but it was you know, it, it spiraled really quickly. It seemed like all of a sudden there was a lot of pressure to. Um, know precisely what it was you were going to do when we were talking about you know um the possibility of, of an election coming up in the next 16 to 18 months maybe and that you'd be campaigning and and there's some suddenly was there's a lot of questions to answer and and um but it was all like a whirlwind and it's easy for us on, on this end to sort of remain enthusiastic and and about it because we're not living it but i can imagine that the pressure that you began to put on yourself and that the you know, the more you play things out, because you're a smart guy, you're thinking about a lot of what ifs and hypotheticals and you're imagining how is this going to go? And so I'm sure that it just, you know, it piled up on you. And, and you know, given that we're in isolation and given the COVID situation of the whole thing, it's not like we could sit down at a table, and look each other in the eyes and, and talk it through. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, I mean, I just, I, again, I, as I said earlier, I, I just believe, I still believe in you. I still think that, that uh, you could do the job and you could do it well. And, and something that, you know, I think bears mentioning is that, you know, as the, as the NDP candidate in Pickering, you are, if you were to stand for election, you're essentially volunteering for frontline infantry duty, right? In a, in a war zone, like the, the conservative hold is, is a strong one. And so, you know, the, not to, not to say that you couldn't have done it, but it would have taken a Herculean effort in order to, uh, you like that word there, Herculean? I do. Yeah. I believe uh, an effort like Hercules's effort would have been. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been necessary to unseat the incumbent who, who, um, and maybe not in Pickering, but definitely in the Uxbridge area is um, sort of an institution. Um, so, and that's where, you know, Christina is from. So, you know, we knew there was going to be a big uphill and it was going to be just a fun ride to be on. But, you know, if at any point it, it felt like it was not going to be fun or it wasn't a challenge you're willing to, to rise to, then, you know, it's understandable why you would, you know, push pause on it. But I do, well, I, I hope that you decide one day to maybe reconsider you know, if, if, if the opportunity ever presented itself to, to think about even municipal politics, even, you know, sitting on your city council or, or, or that kind of thing, because I think uh, you're a guy with ideas, you're a guy that sees things clearly. Um, you're a guy that can use humor to put people at ease. I think you're a bridge builder. Uh, I think you're a good explainer of things, you're a good communicator, you're a, you know, an educator. And, um, you know, I think that, that you've got the, the, the personal skills uh, and the talent to to be very effective in the role. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Um, I think that it would have been on that ground level, like person to person, I think I could have gotten a lot of things done just by looking someone in the eye and hearing what they have to say and, you know, take, taking their concerns to where they need to be going and making sure that I follow through, just like I would as a teacher. But, dude... It got real so fast um, because, like you say, the process isn't just like, oh, you're in Queen's Park, just like that. Like, it would have been such a long process. And it started right now, you'd be in the thick of it. Like, I think that they were starting for mini campaigns that would kick off, I don't know, a week or two ago. And then they'd be campaigning for about three weeks or no, six weeks or so. And they were hoping to have a, a candidate nominated you know, within a matter of months. And I would have been doing that on top of my job as a teacher, which I was just like already drowning in this year. Um, yeah, it took me like a, like a 10 day chunk to, to figure out, like, I don't really want to do this. I spent that whole week since I declared that I was in just doing all these things that I didn't like doing, like being on social media. My God, I was told like, hey, you're going to need a social media presence and you kind of don't have one because you're doing the ninja thing online with your teaching, uh, you know, background. I'm like, yeah, that, that that's going to suck. I'm like, well, well, you're going to need an online presence. I'm like, okay. So spent the weekend like following all of the NDP candidates and uh, NDP um, actual members of parliament. And, you know, trying to read up on all the issues and still mark things and plan out the week to come. And man, it was so stressful. Like it really was, it was, it was eating me up and I, I had zero fun for 10 days straight. And you know, you know me, yeah. I like to, 
sorry, that's not, that's not what you want, right? Like you ultimately, I, you know, I think idealistically you want somebody entering the public service to be truly interested in serving the public. Um, and you're already doing that as a teacher. Um, I'm so, already doing that as a teacher and that's enough, isn't it? Damn it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's no shame in, in <laughs> scouting the landscape and deciding that this isn't the path you want to take, especially when you're already on a good one. Right. It really did feel like that though. Afterwards, it felt like a loss for ooh, a couple of days. I beat myself up over it. Well, because I think you're imagining what could have been. And then, you know, that, that blossoms in your mind into like a fully formed human being doing the thing. And then, when you pull back from it, then you mourn it a little bit. It's, it's, you know, that, that person isn't going to become something. And, um, you know, I think that's a sign that, that, you know, deep down the part of you wanted to do it. I think that, you know, a, a better support system in place, um, may have facilitated you remaining in a little longer. You know, if we had put together a group of people, we don't know what we don't know. Right. But we, if we had put together a team of people who were say preparing, readable, digestible briefs on local issues, or if um, you had somebody that was handling the social media end of things, or at least splitting that responsibility with you so that you could continue to do your job um, and get ready for the things that really mattered. Because I don't know how much your average MPP is, how much time they're spending curating their social media presence. And I don't know how much time they're spending doing research on their own. I mean, they have staff that handles that for them and brings it to them and tells them, this is what, this is what you need to know. And, uh, you know, I don't think you had the advantage of having enough of a working apparatus in place. And again, I, I think that's the COVID. I think if we had had an opportunity to sit down and decide together, um, and if you could, you know, put people in place where you knew them and trusted them and, and they had an area of specialty that, we could have um, made up for some gaps in your knowledge and we could have made up for some gaps in your social media presence. And then you could have gone about the business of trying to sell yourself as a candidate to the people who are ultimately going to be able to decide if you could stand and represent that party in your writing. I think the the whole team approach thing would have been fantastic. You're right. Um, It was the whole key, like, the key piece of I, I already have a job and it, it's, it's a hard job. It's a job that requires time and energy and um, not a mail it in kind of job. So did, did at any point, did you think, okay, I'm going to just take a sabbatical from teaching. Did you, at any point did you go, okay, I'm, I'm all in. Did yes. You consider doing it? Um, I, I was waiting for answers to, to see like when I would have been able to jump onto a leave um, not that it, the answer didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to, but I had considered, okay, how much would it cost for me to take a couple of weeks off to focus on this while I need to, um, but we were doing renovations and, you know, like really it's not a fantastic time to be taking time off from work. Uh, I know that, you know, that's like selfless thinking, but that's just how I think when I'm, I just think about the classroom that way. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like not being there. It's, uh really tricky. So yeah, I totally considered it. I knew that it was going to be uh, something I would have to do if I found success in this process. But um, yeah, that, that totally came into my mind. Like, okay, this might need to, this might need to be your job. 
And it wasn't lost on me that I needed to win my mini campaign. And then I needed to win the actual uh, election. And that was just to be able to get them to do the job. So I was thinking like, okay, if you want to eventually do the job, you got to try and win the thing that lets you win the thing. So yeah, you kind of got now. Yeah. The, the, the steps that were, <laughs> that were left to make, like I think of it, it's sort of analogous to, you know, getting drafted in, in, a, in from, for sports, like, you know, okay, we're going to, we're going to bring you in. We're also bringing in five or six other people. We're going to have a look at everybody. We're not really in the talent development phase of things at this point. We just want to see who's the best natural fit. And then, and then we'll promote you forward and we'll, and we'll try you out at the next level and see and see and see. And, and, you know, again, there was a, there was a long way to go before you were going to be um, digging in against somebody else's best pitcher uh, to sort of complete the analogy. Like yeah. there was a lot of time uh, to go there, but I, I don't even know what my point is exactly, except to say that, you know, um, if, if as a teacher, like you don't, you didn't need to quit your job necessarily. And I think time would have been made available to you. But again, like if, if that's not something you're interested in, in doing, like if you're, if your commitment is to the classroom and to being the best teacher you can be, and, and I know that you're a leader in your school and I, um, you know, in the board in terms of technology and some of the things that you're doing, like why, why would you walk away from that again? Because, you know, you're, you're, you're working in a public service, you're doing things that better the community in that way. Um, and you're already, you're already doing it well. So it, it's understandable for sure. Thanks buddy. I think, uh, I, I didn't know who to be in my downtime afterwards because I went and created a second Facebook that was more clean, more like person, not teacher, um, but more like professional, I guess, but not really knowing, knowing how to do that. Like I was then agonizing over which picture to put up as my profile pick. And I had to pick, I picked like two or three separate ones. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like I'm spending 30 minutes on what my picture is going to be. Like, what the, what the fuck is this? This isn't who I am. I don't like this. And then it came down to like, when I did want to make a post about something, I was like, well, this isn't worth posting because this is about frivolousness. And then I'm like, well, I have to post this. This is important. And I was like, what am I doing here? Like, God damn, this isn't how I do social media. Mm-hmm. I just write stuff and then I move on with life. Check the comments if I feel like it. Reply to some. Get into a conversation. Great. It just, everything felt really heavy. Everything felt important. and. I didn't like being on when I was supposed to be off. It didn't, it didn't feel good. So no, I don't know how any, right, yeah, I think you made the right decision then ultimately you, you did oh. what, what you needed to do. And you had mentioned like, maybe it was hard for me because this fully formed person, this idea of, of Rick, the politician sort of came in and, you know, that wasn't it. I think what it was, was I, I felt really stupid saying I was going to do this, announcing it publicly, announcing it privately. Uh, the the Monday after that weekend, going into my principal's office and telling my P and my VP, hey, look, I'm going to be a zombie for the next few weeks. I'm going to try something that's challenging and it's going to take my time and sanity and my attention will be divided, but it'll be professionally divided. Just just know this is what's up if you wonder like what's going on with me. And they were like, oh, okay. Hmm. And then... Honestly, man, like the th- 
it just changed me. The, the, the whole thought of it just changed me. And it made me realize that I would need to be a different person than I like to be. Um, I started thinking about softball in the summer. Like, am I going to be able to just goof off and go and play softball two or three nights a week? Mike, can I do that? Probably not. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think you probably could, but, um, I, it's, it's hard. It's hard to know. Um, and certainly if that's not something you're willing to sacrifice, then at this time with, with like me thinking the way that I have been thinking for the last little while, it wasn't something I wanted to sacrifice, but now at least it, it made me think of like what 47 year old Rick was like, what 57 year old Rick might be like. Um, politics is definitely a possibility that way. I just, I think I was caught up in the excitement of the opportunity and with me trying to be more optimistic and more, um, I guess less, less afraid, more apt to just say, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. I got caught up in something that could have been so big, but like, I really don't think I would have enjoyed it. man. I really, not at this stage of my life anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would have, it would have been like drinking from a fire hose. Right. Um, but I think that like, <laughs> if, if, you know, if, if it's a stated goal that 10 years from now, you want to be ready to try again, then we, you know, you can start building the foundation. You can start preparing yourself for what that looks like. You can study it a little better and you can have a better understanding of, you know, what, it, what did it ask of you? What did it require of you? And then maybe you can, you know, be successful there or you stay in the classroom and you do what you're doing and you do it great and, and not have any regrets either way. Can we talk for a bit about uh, Alan? Because our buddy Alan was like pretty heavily involved in this process too, uh-huh. um, and he he surprised me in a, in a good way. Like he he brought his A game. I don't know. What did you see? Well, he certainly is knowledgeable. Um, he had obviously been involved uh, in politics uh, to some extent and was familiar with the candidates and being somebody who lives in your riding, he knew the names, he knew, um, you know, the, the, the events, he knew who to get in touch with. And he also seemingly, because he seems to follow politics quite closely from the, from the media perspective, uh, he had an understanding of what the social media resp- responsibilities were going to look like, what the, what the expectations were going to be. Um, and he had some jar- jargon and terminology. When we, we met with him, um, I was overwhelmed by how put together and, and, um, composed and professional he was. Um, not that I was not expecting it, but uh, you know, he's, my only other interactions with him have involved him on a softball diamond. So I, I didn't really know what else to expect. And, and uh, I thought he was, he was going to be a really important asset to your campaign and somebody that you could lean heavily on and trust. I was looking at the two of you on that like Zoom chat meeting that we had. And really it was our only meeting as a, as a full team. And I was like, this is my team. I've got my brain over here. Matt's going to help me with the things that I don't know about the process. He's going to help me with the things that I don't understand about policy. And when I look over at Alan, I'm like, you're my social media, um, media in general guy. You're like, he went and bought up domain names. He bought up Rick page, um, Pickering. Was it? 
rickpagepickering.ca, rickpage.ca. He just went buying up domain names and like, it was just stuff I, I didn't even consider. And he was already like, he'd already done it. Yeah. I think, I think he has a, a he's connected and young and hip. Um, and it makes me sound like an old fart to say that, but like, I think he, he understands how to sell uh, in the in the in the 2020s, I think he had a, has an understanding of what politics means, what it means to be political. I, I think that um, you know the things I could have helped you with were uh, entirely differently. Entirely different. I don't think that um, I could do any of the social media stuff, as you alluded to earlier. I can hardly work my iPhone, but um, <laughs> I think that uh, I think Alan was going to be probably more important than anything I was going to be able to contribute because of his internet savvy, his tech savvy, and again, his connectedness to, to the region that you were planning to run in. And like, I think that you hit the nail on the head. He might've been more like useful, so to speak, just because this is what the game is now. It's, it's that, right? Like if you don't have a strong social media game, you don't really have a strong politics game right now. I think, uh, not, not for the strategy that Pickering Uxbridge would require. Like I think to take down this writing, you'd need to unite Pickering Uxbridge because um, they're two very different places. And I would need to bring the youth and connect them with the, with the older people. Like I'd have to bridge, like you said, be that bridge between different groups of people yeah. in order to down. And Alan would have been important for that because I would put myself more in like on your side, like he's more savvy than I am too. But I, you know what I mean? If, if you guys are the polar opposites, I'm closer to you than I am to him. He's, he's way more tech savvy. Yeah. I, and you know, it's funny though. I, I wonder, it's just me thinking out loud here and wondering, but I, I don't know that social media was going to win you Uxbridge. I don't think Uxbridge is a, a particularly connected community in terms of social media. I don't know. It doesn't really, um, I don't want to disparage my wife's hometown, but it's not, uh, it's not a, you know, a happening youthful place. It's an older population. It's a largely rural population. Um, so I don't know, I don't know how well social media would have worked there. Or what like it might've been more about Facebook, frankly, than it would have been about, um, you know, uh, Twitch or, or um, Twitter or <laughs> snap face or whatever. Twitch uh, is for Instagram. Instagram. That's the one everybody uses. Instagram. <laughs> Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if Instagram was going to win you, Uxbridge. I think it was. It, it, that would have been more of a uh, pressing the flesh. I think it would have been handshakes and eye contact and and uh, um, you know, volunteering up in that that community and being seen as a sort of a stand up guy. I think. I think for all the social media efforts, I think renting a pickup truck and just going up and helping on a farm would have probably won you as much credibility in that particular community. Not to disparage our friends in Uxbridge, but. No, no, but like that's where my being uh, a white kid who grew up in South Oshawa and knows what the meaning of uh, a bird in, in the hand is worth two in the bush. Like I understand idioms. That's that's one of those bridges that helps you get to the the Uxbridge side. You know what I mean? Like I feel like the social media piece would have been to attack the Pickering part. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it would have been just me, like you said, like you know, shaking hands, kissing babies. Not, not during COVID times because you don't kiss a baby. You really shouldn't. I don't know if we should. Do we jump into this? Should you just kiss a baby? Should you have consent? No, you, you got to have. It's the consent. Yeah, consent is key here. Um, I, I think you probably need to get consent from both parents. Maybe kiss? writing. 
from the okay thank you yeah from both parents in writing mm-hmm. yeah yeah so in the end i think uh I, I i i probably could have taken a good run at it i think it would be ridiculous to announce that i would have won pickering uxbridge in some way you and alan would have been instrumental in it tj has been so helpful too i and that's the last thing. I felt embarrassed that I, I told people I was going to do it. Uh, I, I was embarrassed. I even told my class I was going to do it because I was trying. We were talking about politics anyway. We were having a classroom election. Obviously, the uh, the U.S. election was getting pretty hot at the time, too. Um, it was very exciting, but I was embarrassed to tell my class amongst everyone else that I said I was going to do something and I'm not going to do it. But really i i had a lot of people rally around me just to say like dude you uh you might not do it yet you might do it someday uh there's no harm in tapping out before you you jump into something and you know just relax don't sweat the small stuff but i don't know you're you're a hard on you're a hard guy on your own self i think you get where i probably was coming I, from i understand i understand what you're saying i don't know like you know, feeling embarrassed. I understand that certainly, but I, I think that um, there's nothing to be embarrassed. About. I think it would be more embarrassing to get further down the line and then pull the shoot. I think it was so early that, um, you know, I think it's actually a show of strength and confidence. And I don't think that that's something to be embarrassed about is that I was like, I felt confident. I thought I could do it. I, I looked at it. I decided not to like, those are all I statements that you're in control of your narrative there. And I think that, you know, everybody, nobody was like, crushed or disappointed to find out that you decided not to do it. It seemed ambitious. It seemed um, like a risk and a risk worth taking, but ultimately like, you know, you, you, you made the decision that was right for you and Amanda and you made the decision that's right for you right now. And, you know, I think we got, we got up to the line there and we looked and we found out there was a lot we didn't know. And uh, you know, that uh, it would have been more of an embarrassment to try to proceed with a, with an understanding that we didn't know anything and just soldier forward anyway, out of, um, avarice when fr- frankly, like it was, it was probably the, the prudent and better decision just to say, eh, maybe not now, maybe another time. Yep. I think you're right. Definitely prudent to wait. Um, so yeah, like I've been spending a lot of my, uh, my free time. Okay. Speaking of tech tips, you need to learn how to use the YouTube app on your iPhone and then set up a list of videos that you want to watch in a queue that play on your TV without plugging anything in at all with wires. Matt, this is the future. Or it was like two years ago and I just found out now and I'm excited. About it. Yeah. What do you look when you're looking at stuff on YouTube? What are you looking at? Uh, lately, so much baseball. Like I'm, I'm depressed. I think it's fair to say I'm depressed with, uh, with my lack of social stuff. There's no hockey. There's no baseball. I am going nuts without my friends. So I'm just trying to think about the blue Jays during free agency. And I got to tell you, man, I am now a Trevor Bauer fan. I'm a big fucking Trevor Bauer fan. And I want Trevor Bauer in a blue Jays uniform. Talk me out of it. Go. <laughs> well, I mean, no arguing with his talent. Um, he's uh, he's a guy with you know, he's worked worked really hard to um, 
become elite and he's he's legitimately elite but he you know there's that question about the, the circumstances under which he left cleveland right where he sort of demanded his way behaved his way out of town um and butted heads with uh with uh, the manager there francona and um you know the, that that's tough and then you know you, you, the, i guess the argument against him is that uh because he's such a shoot from the hip free thinker that he might be trouble in the, in the locker room. And I mean, we don't know what's, what it's like behind closed doors in the clubhouse, but you know, those things may be problematic. You can remember him um, slicing his hand um, on the the day, days before yeah, on a drone, the days before the Jays played them in the playoffs that one year. I'm forgetting what year that was. And um, you know, it's that, that's the act of a, a guy who doesn't take his profession particularly seriously and takes himself very seriously. And my interests matter more than, than the team. Um, you know, oh, it's okay. I'll just glue it back together. I can still pitch. And then there was blood streaming down his hand and pooling on the mound. And I remember Gibbons going out and pointing at it. Like, are you seeing this? Um, and actually it was probably an advantage for the Jays for him to stay in, in that game. Cause there's blood on the ball and he didn't know where the hell it was going. We were hitting them. Yeah. yeah. But um, like certainly, like I, I know that you know I don't I'm, I'm not the technical guy you want to talk to here, but like he's he went to the he's one of the first uh, acolytes of that uh, driveline program, and so like everything he throws comes out of the same window, same release point. So his fastball, his slider, his curveball, his changeup, they all look identical out of the hand, and that that ability to deceive hitters is is elite. Not everybody can do that, and um, you know his ability to to make people swing and miss and miss barrels um, is, is an asset. And frankly, the Jays don't have enough pitching. So anybody they could bring in would be great. And maybe him coming uh, signals to some other guys out there in the market that, Hey, maybe Toronto's a place to go. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to talk to you. But I, 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 it's fun to dream, but uh, I have this very sinking suspicion that they're not going to get anybody actually. Uh, okay. One thing. You got to check out some Trevor Bauer stuff on YouTube then, because he seems like a great guy in the locker room. He's, he's a good teammate. It seems like, um, he really would upgrade the pitching, uh, like staff all across the board because have you heard very much about this, uh, performance enhancing substance that he uses on the ball to increase the spin rate? No, <laughs> you got to check it out. It's ridiculous. Um, Google Trevor Bauer is cheating and it's like a 15 minute long video. It's, 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 it's wild, but he essentially knows how to, um, put extra spin on the ball and he's doing it at will. And because, uh, you know, the, the dirty secret, that everyone's doctoring the baseball in major league baseball, no one's really getting called out on it, but apparently Bauer's got it figured out. So yeah, check that out. You know, I just I like how, how the the brashness of like calling your pitches from the mound in the game action. Here, here it comes. See if you can hit it. Yeah. Um, there's a, a YouTube show called R2C2, and it stars uh, CC Sabathia and some guy I don't know. Ryan Rucco. Ryan Rucco. There you go. Yeah. Um, and I, I watched Sabathia a little bit online. I love him online, man. Like it's, it's a winning formula of their show. 
I watched an episode with Trevor Bauer, Sonny Gray, CC, and, you know, whoever the other guy, what's his name? Ryan Rico. Ryan Rico. Um, yeah, they were just talking baseball and it was almost an hour and I enjoyed every freaking second of it. They talked about pitching in such a detailed, careful, thoughtful way that like I was just super excited the whole conversation. So check it out, man. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that, that, that sounds interesting, but the, the one thing is that the, you know, those are guys with elite talent talking about how they use their elite talent to be elite. So it's, is it relatable? Did you find that it was like, Oh, I could, I could take this into my own. I know as you know, I, I know you stand in the middle of the diamond and try to get people out, not the same way, but um, like, is, is there, is there something that you can take from that and go like, Oh yeah, that's, I can use that on the Hill. Or is that something that it's just interesting to listen to these guys talk about their experiences? Well, you've watched me pitch for a number of years and I don't think that I've ever been like a good pitcher, but in the last couple of years, I've definitely figured stuff out that I didn't know before. I could spin the ball better than I did before. I feel like I have a better idea of what I'm trying to do on the mound now than I did before. So part of that is I've I've always thought more about my pitching than anyone ever could give me any credit for because it wasn't very good but I thought about it a lot. Yeah. I put a lot of effort and energy into it. And they were talking about making adjustments and watching, uh, you know, the result of the ball based on where you're gripping it and how you're holding it. And just being able to get an idea of, okay, if I put more pressure on this finger, it, it will then skip in this direction. And if I change the axis in this slight way, it'll move the, the direction of the ball in that way. And those are things that I do think about at this point now. Like you've seen me sort of goof around a little bit. Um, It was just exciting to see that they have this technology where they can slow it down and look at like 2000 frames per second, what they're doing and making those adjustments. And I'm just like some fucking idiot on the middle of the soap, you know, the the softball diamond trying to do the same shit with a softball in a game that doesn't matter at all. But it was kind of it was cool to geek out a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it, it sounds more interesting than, than listening to like the. Um, I've I've seen some stuff from like that um, Baseball Ontario puts up or Baseball Canada puts up, and it's like really technical college level coaches talking about um, drills and things like that. But it's I always find it not particularly relatable. Um, so you know, if it's something that I think the, the psychology of it is more interesting than the the kinesiology of it, frankly, like just how they think the game. Cause I don't know if look, we're not, we're not elite athletes. We can't repeat our mechanics perfectly. I think that you've got enough reps now um, as a pitcher, having done it for 15 years that um, you don't have to worry about mechanically what you're doing. You can start fine tuning. You know, mm-hmm. if you put me on the middle of the diamond and ask me to pitch and get people out, uh, my mechanics aren't going to be repeatable because I haven't been doing it. So I'd be a disaster. Maybe those college coaches could help me, but I think that actually, you know, listening to the pros talk about what they think about while they're doing their job might be more relevant. What was cool about it, to be honest, was more how colloquial they were having their talk. Like it was just four dudes shooting the shit. And I felt like I had access to the stuff that I wanted to hear baseball players talk about. Like they went on about the Astros cheating and Hearing the, I think they were, uh, Sonny Gray and CC Sabathia were on the Yankees in 17 when they lost to the Astros in the world, 
or in the uh, ALCS. And they were just talking about how they knew they fucking knew they were years behind the Astros that they were cheating in such a way that they were just behind. They knew it and how deflated they felt any game that they were playing in Houston, just because they knew that like shit was happening. And it was cool to see them just talk shit about cheaters. So yeah, I I really enjoyed that. Check that one out for sure. Lenny Dykstra. What a fucking tire fire this guy's life has turned into. I, I only just to tangentially know what's going on there. I know that I know that he's had some pretty severe personal issues. I just remember him as a ball player, frankly, and and, and not even the totality of his career. I remember him that one year in '93. But what's going on he with was, him? Like, fill, fill me in. Let's for the for the sake of those who don't know. So he breaks into the league in like '88 or '89 or something. He's like 160 pounds. And he's that relentless guy that you remembered in 93. Like he was a battery. You wanted him on your team, but you know, he was clearly on the roids clearly and whatever gets caught. Yada, yada, yada winds up after his playing days are over being the shiftiest motherfucker ever. Anyone that would give him a loan, he just took it. Didn't pay anyone back. Um, Fraud here, theft there. Um, I think he was sentenced to 80 years in prison. Um, and the video kind of wraps up. It's a whirlwind, and I'm, I'm very, very summarizing here. But he describes on Howard Stern vaguely that he gets money now as a 57-year-old for, like, banging older women. Like, he's... He's $30 million in the hole and he just sounds like a mess of a man. And it's like, you were, you were like a mainstay on an all-star lineup for a while. You know, I think there's probably some, some guys our age that had Lenny Dykstra posters in their bedrooms in Philadelphia that feel pretty embarrassed about their, uh, their particular choice in heroes. Yeah. It'd be like (laughs) Kelly Gruber was like, you know, just a full on fucking mess. And you could like see him just like when you visit Toronto, like he's just, he's there like begging for money or something. And you're like, Hey, Kelly Gruber. Well, like, you know, an active criminal is, is different from, you know, being a guy that you know, says the wrong things at the wrong times or something. I know Gruber got into, he got pulled away from a microphone at one point for saying something inappropriate at a Jay's function. But like if Dykstra's, out there committing crimes, committing felonies, getting like that, that would be, that's, that's unheard of. I mean, but like, could you imagine anybody off the Jays roster at that point in time? Like, I, I don't, it's probably rose colored glasses, but you know, I think of those guys as being consummate gentlemen. I'm sure they all had some peccadillas as well. Maybe John Olerud was like a total maniac, but I, I somehow doubt it. Um, yeah. I've heard Devon White's like, maybe, maybe still quite cocky and, and whatever, but, like if you saw the way he patrolled center field, I'm gonna let him. Yeah, I'd be a little lucky. Devo was my hero. He's who I wanted to be, so I, I won't hear any of that. <laughs> I know that's why I was kind of <laughs> out there. How about Elijah Dukes? Was Elijah Dukes one of your favorite players? I've never even heard of that person. Who's Elijah Dukes? Elijah Dukes is, uh, as this one video calls him, the biggest psycho in professional sports. 
Um, he had like three pro years where he played for the Tampa Bay Rays and a few other organizations. But um, this guy was like, they had a run. This video had a running tally of how many assaults he had, how many restraining orders there were, how many suspensions there were, how many ejections there were, how many children he had uh, all in this three year career. And he had been arrested like, six times he had like signature moves where he really liked choking people. He just seemed to like find, find his way into the news for choking another person, um, all kinds of domestic abuse. And when his career was over, he just continued. Like he's just a bad dude that does bad things. And I had never really heard of him, but like he got, he got in with the rays. He got in with the nationals um, remember when the Nationals were a joke? Yeah. They cut him. He was like their starting right fielder, and he probably could have played somewhere else, but they're just like, no, we've seen enough of Elijah Dukes. So he's not like Josh Hamilton, who just had the substance abuse issues and was such a a massive talent that there was, it was undisputable that you had to keep giving him chances, even though he was um, somebody who would uh, – get back into trouble from time to time. I, I stumble over my words. Better, but, um, no, I've never heard of Elijah Dukes. I'm kind of glad I haven't. It doesn't sound like he's a guy worth following, frankly. Not following, but like, aren't you, I don't know, I guess now you're, you're the consummate good guy. And I'm the guy that reads the books about the asshole athletes, but I just, I find it interesting when like you have the world at your foot and you're like, nah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a mess. I'm going to be a mess. Just sucks for all the kids like you and me that would throw a ball against the wall or shoot hoops, you know, till, till our like elbows and wrists are sore just to get a shot. And like, this guy has all this talent and he's just like, man, I'm a fucking asshole. Deal with it. Yeah. It sounds like mental illness then, right? It sounds like uh, maybe he's not in control um, and that the talent just carried him past any scrutiny from the adults who probably could have thrown some barriers up along the way. Maybe since an opportunity that was in front of them financially. So they're just like, yeah, he might be nuts, but let's, let's see where this goes. A scholarship's a scholarship, uh, a rookie contract's a rookie contract. Let's just keep, keep uh, covering it up. And I mean, I, I, I wonder, you know, a guy like that's probably, I've never heard of him really, but like probably marginally educated and, and has been told his whole life that he's special and that, and unique and that he's, he can do whatever he wants. And um, nothing stood in the way of that. Uh, I think, I think, I think get, a lot of pro athletes probably have some pretty major ego issues. I, 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 it's unsurprising that they have a um, entitlement or that they, I think most guys aren't that way, but you know, when one pops up, it's not inconceivable. I mean, there's people like that out there in the world, but it's, it's amazing that, you know, um, it, frankly, it's amazing that he got to the level he got to. And that just speaks to like the, the desire of the front offices to, to win ball games. They'll, they'll put anybody out there, give them another shot if they think they can win a ball game with them. He made a sniff. Like he, he had like a shot at being a four-star athlete. Like he's just this kind of like freak, you know, athlete. And he had said after his baseball days were over, like I should have, I should have played in the NFL. And everyone's like, well, yeah, with your, with your domestic abuse track record, you, you should have played in the NFL. You would have, you would have been suspended less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're just their type. 
Yeah. You had mentioned, uh, you know, getting drafted and all that stuff. And I watched another interesting video today, which is just really hitting home how much YouTube I'm watching lately. Um, this Canadian young man was describing um, his journey in being drafted into pro baseball. And he spent six years, I think it was six, maybe it was five, um, just in uh, the San Francisco Giants organization. And he just sat there and took you through, it was like a 15 minute long video where he, he just took you through year by year, how much money he made. Here's, here's what my contract is. Here's my $15,000 signing bonus. Here's the structure of my deal. My first year, here's how much money I made when I had to go and, uh, you know, try and make uh, the spring training. You don't get any money for spring training. So I got nothing there. And he just took you through the whole thing. And you realize like this guy kind of went through hell trying to get this dream of his to go somewhere. Um, He describes finally getting low enough rent in single A ball that like he sets up his rent situation to be like 260 a month. There's seven guys sharing a three bedroom house and the manager gives him the tap and says, Hey, we're, we're pulling you up to double a, and he almost rolls his eyes like, fuck, I just got a fucking apartment. <laughs> he knows that this game isn't going to end in him being in the pros. He's just trying to hang on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he's what he goes in double a, he's there a few weeks and he's winding up back at single a. And after six years, it's done. Like they tried to convert him over to a pitcher and he's like, ah, I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll be the catcher that goes to be a pitcher. Fine. And it was really refreshing to watch like a young man just describe like, Hey, this is what it was like. It didn't go well, but like, here's what it is. And if you're curious, this is what behind the curtain looks like. Uh, It's interesting. I wonder, was he straight out of high school or was he a guy that played some college ball? Uh, I think he played Juco. He describes uh, doing well in high school, playing some Juco in the States and uh, junior college. If you're not a a baseball person and uh, that's usually like junior college, you know, is how you get a bit more attention. If you, you know, it's like add some more to your resume, right? Try to get some seats. Yeah. So that's a real roller coaster from like drafted at say age 20 and retired by 26 or 27. That's tough. I think he went, Third round? Was 15K sound like third round money? No, no, not, not unless um, they he took a well below slot deal. So it would probably be more like that's like 13th round money that guys in the top five may do really well. Oh, yeah. Top five rounds, I should say. And that's what he was saying. Oh, top five rounds. Okay. And he was just saying, like, my advice to you is because you don't get any help from the team when you're looking for rent. Like, He's like, you're on your own. Like, you're a grown-ass man. You're on your own. The, the team's not holding your hand with any of this, not even your first year. No one's helping you. So get what you can for your signing bonus because he made $0 for, like, the majority of his career. Yeah, and that's where an agent is really important, right? Because an agent is sort of like a social worker for athletes. They're going to be the ones that tell them uh, the ins and outs. And, you know, if they've if the agent's got a stable of guys – um, they may have other guys that are already in place in the system and they can say, Hey, this is my new, this is my new guy. He's with us in the company. Let's, uh, let's make sure he's looked after. Let's teach him how to, but some of these guys, like they're so coddled. Um, and you know, I, I doubt very, very much that many of them would have had any experience having a, a real job, for example. 
um, or paying any bills or doing anything for themselves. I'm sure their parents like coddled them and looked after them to a large extent. Um, and then they were on meal plans at their JUCOs um, that uh, like they, they get to, you know, they're 2021, 20, they're drafted, they go to, they report to low A ball. And as you said, they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and then they struggle professionally because they run up against talent they've never really encountered before. And it, it just blows their doors off. I mean, we, we had a guy um, that we coached um, who um, was drafted by the Blue Jays and went down and sort of languished in rookie ball. And, I, I, you know, he had a, had a nice signing bonus. And, um, you know, I, I, a few years later, he's, he's totally out of the game. Um, and he's, he's back up here in Ontario and he's, you know, he's playing some, some, um, inter-county league ball and, and, you know, not, not doing very much. And, and, you know, he was, a, he was the best baseball player I'd ever seen when, uh, when we had him on the diamond as a teenager, but it's, it was a, this, the learning curve was really steep. I think he went out right away and bought himself a truck and spent half of his money. And, and the way it worked, my understanding was that you, you could defer some of your signing bonus. And as long as you went to, uh, uh, to school, the team was willing to pick up the cost of your tuition. And uh, this kid decided he wasn't going to do that and just took it all up front and then spent it all. And then, you know, at the, at the end of his rookie deal, I think rookie deals last six years or five or six years, and then the team has to make a decision on what to do with you. Um, you know, they cut him loose. So it's just, it, it comes and goes really quickly. And he was the best, eh? Like the best you got to see? He was a kid who, uh, you know, played so-called elite baseball here in Southern Ontario. There's a lot of different programs that call themselves elite. And uh, he was a guy that was a pitcher and a catcher. Um, and actually, we used him as a pitcher, and it was we didn't have any other catching that could handle him. He was throwing, um, you know, over 90 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, he'd throw a great 10 back there who's uh, – <laughs> uh, is just trying not to get killed, um, and then and then a breaking ball gets thrown and, and it fools everybody. Um, so we basically used him almost exclusively as a catcher, and he was a big, strong boy and um, and a natural leader. And um, yeah, he was he was as good a player as I'd ever seen us have. And subsequently, we've had guys who uh, have been drafted and went and did better professionally, but they weren't better high school players than this kid was. This was the, the best high school player we ever had was um, he was, he was really something to watch. Fun to be around too. And good kid to coach. He'd listen to me even, even though I'm not by any means an expert in the coaches that we have uh, where I work. Um, I don't know if I should name that out loud. I probably won't, but um, you know, the coaching that we have there is elite level coaching. And I just, you know, sort of am there to help and observe and, and contribute where I can chip in a little bit. And, uh, and this kid would listen to me and would, uh, you know, ask me questions. And it wasn't just to humor me. He was genuinely interested in collecting information and, and getting better. But then once he got to the pros, um, the, the, the way it kind of works is you're sort of in charge of your own development. Um, I think teams are taking it a little bit more seriously and doing it a little bit differently and applying some science to it now. But at that time, up to that point, you get drafted and it's like, well, okay, sink or swim. Do your bullpens. Take your reps. Um, when you get the opportunity, you better not blow it. Because guess what? Next year, we've got another draft. We're going to bring in a whole other stable of guys, and you're easy to cut. You're easy to get rid of. And we'll, we'll just emphasize the guys with the most natural talent. And so there's not a ton of cultivation. And I think this, this kid had some tools, and probably he ended up uh, – they converted him to a pitcher. And I think that 
he could have been good. Um, and in fact, was involved in a trade the Jays did uh, to bring in a major league reliever. And this is sort of a funny story. I ended up getting I, I briefly on Twitter at one point many years ago, and I got into a dispute with Dirk Hayhurst. The, uh, at the time, the Jays, I don't know if he's like involved in the, the Fan 590 up here, and uh, he disparaged this kid when he'd been traded to get this pro reliever. It's like, he's a nothing prospect. And I was like, hey, man, like, that's not very nice. Like, he, how do you know he's nothing? That's not very nice to say. And he's like, well, you know, I got experience, blah, blah, blah. And I go, yeah, but you, you just, you're saying mean stuff for no reason. And he blocked me. But um, yeah, I don't know. I lost my train of thought there, Rick. But I, I think that, uh, you, you know, this kid was just completely overwhelmed by, by being a pro athlete and wasn't ready to be a pro athlete and didn't have anybody there. He's like living in Florida all of a sudden. And he didn't have anybody there to help him make good decisions. He didn't have anybody there to help him make good nutrition decisions or help him working out. Like he's just in there pumping iron because that's what other guys are doing. And he's not doing anything that's like uh, catered specifically to his needs in terms of development as a pro athlete. So, um, you know, there's I'm like the story of the, the guy getting drafted and six years later being out of ball. I mean, that happens all the time and it's not emphasized. We, we hear the glory stories of the guys who make it up through the ranks, but more often than not, guys languish and then disappear and then end up like back in their home communities and have to look people in the eye in their community and say, I didn't make it. And here's why. And they might not even know why. And then they start telling stories about ah, injuries or coach didn't like me or blah, blah, blah. And, and begin to make excuses because really, I, you know, from, from our perspective back home in the community that he came from, it was like, this guy was, this guy was a God. This guy was really good. But, you know, the, the great leveler is playing professionally and, and running into guys that are of equal or better talent and Canadians have it hard because you're running into kids from Texas and Oklahoma and California who can, you know, play 12 months a year. Yeah. Yeah. You might want to check out that video then just to have it as a resource, like a cautionary tale for your, your boys that want to hang their hats on their pro careers that are coming their way. Definitely. Like, it's not that fucking easy. It's no. just not. No. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yep, send me the link. Okay. Um, I've also watched plenty of fuck the Houston Astros videos that that's also making me quite happy. Um, just have you heard of John Boy Media? I'm sure you have. No, actually, have not. So John Boy is a YouTuber that takes whatever thing that happened in major league baseball or other sports. I know he liked football, but I just, I don't. So good, good for him. Um, but he looks at the play and he breaks it down and he like freeze frames. And he, he tells the story behind the story. Like, okay, now what you don't know is two years ago, this guy threw at this guy and here's why let's go back and I'll show you that footage. He breaks it all down. He's kind of a funny guy the way that he does it too. But you can hear the Astros cheating. Like you hear the trash can banging on whenever, you know, someone shows the, the change up signal and then, you know, the cameras catch it and some guy fucking bangs on a drum twice. And then the hitter knows that change ups coming. Like it was, it's cool to see after they have cheated watching everyone's reactions. Like there's one video I watched. It's, it's just, superstar baseball players talking about how bad cheating is and how mad they are. And um, 
it fires you up, man. Fired me right up. Like I was like, where's my glove? Where's my fucking, where's my glove right now? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I, I don't spend a ton of time on YouTube. Um, tough, tough as a parent to be able to just sort of take any, any time for yourself until uh, the kids go down for bed. So, um, but that's, you know, something if we're going to be locked down because <laughs> it appears we're going to be for uh, probably at least the month of January. I'll try to find some time because that sounds interesting. I like the idea of like understanding the backstory. They've got a cool thing on um, Sportsnet right now where they do these trade trees, which I'm sure you've seen where they like the, the lasting impacts of particular trades and they break down, you know, initially this drag, this guy got traded for this guy, but then later on these guys get traded and this brought other people into the, um, into the system, into the organization. So ultimately, you know, like when it's a really big name, like Chris Pronger or Bobby Ryan, you know, they got traded and then the players that were acquired were subsequently traded and they got more out of it and more out of it. And ultimately, you know, 15 years later, you're still seeing the impacts on the roster. And they, they did one with, uh, with Wayne Gretzky and it was like, it goes on forever. It's like, it takes them an hour to break down the Gretzky trade from, from uh, whatever year that was 88, I think. Yeah, I uh, I saw that pop up too. Yeah. Um, I love trade trees, and Steve Dangle does a good trade tree. Yeah, I think that's who it is. Yeah. Uh, what do you remember about Kerry Wood striking out twenty guys? Um, almost nothing. Um, I remember. I remember. I, what I remember about Kerry Wood is that he was very dominant, very briefly, and then sort of vanished. Um, and him and Mark Pryor for the Cubs were both like phenomenal power righties whose mechanics put incredible strain on their bodies and ultimately they broke down way before they were due. They both looked like Hall of Famers and then ultimately neither one of them really amounted to anything, which is which is a shame. Um, but striking out 20, and I, I don't remember it. I couldn't tell you what year or who his opponent was or anything like that. I uh, I think it was Colorado and the uh, the counterpart also in that same game had like a one hit like loss that he uh, probably a complete game loss, but it was like an hour long video of the story of Kerry Woods, 20 strikeouts, man. Uh, it was, yeah, that phenomenal first year. I think it was like his third start or something. So what I'm going to do, man, is I'm going to take these videos I've just brought up, I'm going to make a playlist, send it to you so that you have it. And uh, it's up to you to figure out how to link your YouTube app on your phone with your smart TV. Because when you can send a list of YouTube videos to your TV, and then while you're watching it, you're looking for the next video to add to the queue. I'm telling you, you're going to feel like you're in the future. You're going to feel like it's Rocky four and you have a freaking robot that's going to do your bidding for you. Great. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, Maddie, we've uh, talked a lot about uh, my politics and, and, and how much YouTube I'm watching about baseball. What are you guys up to? What, what are you doing to pass the time? What's lighting up your brain these days? Uh, so we, we've made a real conscious effort to try to have a routine. Our kids really thrive on, on routine. At least we, we think they do. Um, and so what we've been trying to do every day is we go for a walk in the woods. There's lots of great paths out here. Um, so we pick a path, we drive up, we park, we uh, walk, you know, two or three K in the woods. It's quiet. 
um, it's been it's been really good. And uh, so we we pick a path every day, and that's that's something we do. We've been you know doing uh, after the Christmas frenzy came and went, then it was time to start building toys and playing the board games and reading the books and and that kind of thing. So that's been fun too. Um, and then Christina likes to uh, she's been she went did a little bit more watercolor. She picked up watercolor in. The, the first quarantine lockdown in the spring, so she was doing some watercolors. So she made some greeting cards for Christmas um, doing that. And then for me, I'm, I've been, um, I have, well, as you know, I'm a big movie guy. So I've been watching movies with uh, my former department head. Uh, we, we sort of make a date where uh, I'm, I'm watching something at home. He's watching the same thing in his house. We start at roughly the same time. And then when it's done, we text about it, which is, I'm sure, not the most efficient way to do it, but it's it's working for us. Um, so just last night, for example, I watched uh, an old spaghetti western called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which I think I you may have heard of. It's got Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach. And it's directed by Sergio Leone, and it's, it's beautiful and it's magnificent, and it does a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but I think a lot of people, you know, disregard it as being – from a, a previous era and therefore not interesting. Um, but you know, in terms of storytelling, it was, it was awesome. And we've been doing that every week. So that's, I've been doing that, um, you know, since the, the pandemic started. And then, um, for my recently past 40th birthday, uh, my buddies, Dave and Craig got me a subscription to the Criterion channel, which is a, uh, sort of repository of, of um, important films and, and art films and foreign films and stuff. So I've been checking stuff out there in the evenings, but like, you know, outside of that, I, I, um, I'm running, I run four times a week I'm running about 40 K a week right now. And, um, just, you know, getting out, listening to podcasts while I run and, and, uh, getting some fresh air. And, uh, other than that, like just trying to conserve some energy for what's about to come, because I think the, what we're going to face here with online teaching simultaneously with two online students. So there's going to be four people on four screens all trying to do something simultaneously here. It's going to be pretty chaotic and hectic. So um, we're just trying to sort of enjoy the moments that we have now. And uh, I had that fun feeling this morning where I woke up and I wasn't sure what day it was, which is always a sign that holidays have really um, taken. Yeah, they're working. Yeah. I get the same. I'm, I'm sure all non-teacher people that are listening are like, fuck you guys. But there is that magical time in the holidays where you look up, you have to look at like a calendar or a watch or ask someone what fucking day is it? I don't know what day it is. And they're like, well, the thing is happening on Wednesday. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. What day is today though? What you day know, is today? If, if we could just circle back, like, yeah, I, I agree that there are probably people who are non-teachers, um, who think that that's outrageous that we have holiday time. I just think that the, the reaction that like the, to be mad at us for having holidays is unfair, frankly, because really what you should want is you should want the same thing for yourself. You know, I once had a situation, this is a, a weird anecdote, but I once had the situation where I was, um, we were, we were on, on strike uh, a few years ago and uh, I happened to go in for a dental cleaning um, while we were on strike. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the chair and I'm in that prone, vulnerable position where your head is actually like below your knees. They get you tilted back. The light's in your face. I get the bib on. And the hygienist who is scraping away with the hooky thing and the pokey thing 
and cleaning my teeth says, you know, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a teacher. And she lost it and started yelling at me while doing the dental work. So she's like scraping away, but she's like, you assholes, you teachers, you think you have it so good, blah, blah, blah. And how dare you? My kids, my no good kid is sitting at home watching TV and smoking pot all day instead of being in the classroom where he's supposed to be. And it's your fault and so on and so on. And, and you know, it's because of your unions. And, and I always think like, okay, I get it that you're not happy with your situation, but I don't think it's fair or rational to want us not to have that. Like, I think you should want it for yourself too. Like, I don't mm -hmm. understand why the hygienist is not thinking like, yeah, I should be able to get holidays in the, in, in the course of the year. And, and I should have, I should have good benefits. Like I, I, I don't know. I don't get resenting people for having things, but of course I'm in a position where I have the, the, the blessings that teaching offers us. And so maybe, maybe that's not the great. Anyways, that long story short is that that hygienist, I, uh, when I came out afterwards, cause she like, I stayed and she finished cleaning my teeth and I was like white knuckling it the whole time. Cause she's like fuming at me. And, um, I came out and the, the receptionist was like, what happened in there? And I said, well, I, I told her I was a teacher and she doesn't like unions very much. So she let me have it. And she was like, Oh my goodness. And then the dentist, um, who happened not to be there cause he was stuck in traffic. So it was just a hygienist. The dentist called me personally and apologized and, uh, um, you know, he, he, he hoped he'd be able to keep my business, but would understand if I didn't come back. And we ultimately didn't go back, but it was, you know, it was absolutely bizarre. I just, I always think like, it's not fair to, to, I don't know, nobody's going to take sympathy with me here and, and maybe we'll edit this whole thing out, but it, it's, I don't think it's fair to dump on people for having something when really what you should want is you should want it for yourself too. Like why shouldn't everybody have the same benefits and entitlements that teachers have? We have the money in this country. Let's just make it happen. Now here we go back to this full circle here. We're talking politics again. No, but just to go further with it, like selfishly, she does get it. Like if teachers are public servants and we are, then Teachers getting time away to recharge the batteries. We can come back and finish the job that benefits your kid. Like that benefits the system. Like you, you want people to be recharged when they go back. And it's a weird thing that like people aren't going to see it this way, but maybe we should, you should be happy that teachers get a chance to recharge because if we don't get these two weeks now and, and the, the week in March, like Matt, we always are like, we're, we're, we're white knuckling we're white knuckling at the last two weeks leading up to those breaks because it's a tricky job. It's a yeah. tricky job. I, and I think in 2020, you know, I'm, I am in on the, the union meetings and I, you know, I hear the OSSGF president speak um, on a fairly regular basis. And, and, you know, the, the phrase that has come up uh, starting in September with the, the amount of work that was sort of dumped on teachers and the, the steepness of the learning curve for people to adopt technology, not only adopt it, but to get great at it um, and perform uh, really effectively with it was that people were June tired. That was the phrase June tired. And, and this was in September that like the, we'd done a year's worth of, of work in a matter of weeks and that people by the time December rolled around, People were losing it everywhere. Like I was seeing people with tears in their eyes 
on a pretty regular basis. If not daily, it was semi-daily. And it was, you know, you're hearing people complain and yell and there's, there's infighting in the offices and people are losing their patience with each other. And, um, you know, this has been, this has been a really challenging year for everybody, certainly. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to, uh, understate, um, I wouldn't want to overstate, excuse me, the, you know, what, what's going on with us when, in fact, like, you know, what we have going on is not nearly as challenging as what the, the truly frontline healthcare workers are going through. But, um, you know, like people are, people are exhausted and it, yeah, the begrudging teachers, the ability, like as a taxpayer, not as a teacher, but as a taxpayer, like I would want teachers to be able to recharge i would like it if police officers could recharge and in fact they you know they they have good holidays um and emts like i want them i don't want them to be run ragged i want i want there to be more doctors so that there's an ability for for everybody to catch up and do their job better Mm -hmm. who's who's working effectively you know at the end of a marathon i've I've run a half marathon a half marathon and i know that by the end of a half marathon you're not really working at, at the best of your ability as, as opposed to when you start, I mean, if you want to take that analogy further, like, you know, who's, who's going to be really performing their best this year in April or May in the school year in June, given what we've gone through, like the, the expectations are like staggeringly high and uh, you know, it's really wearing on people. I have, I have great concerns about our, our sort of general mental health and well-being among, among uh, educators. There seems to be a double speak going on too with what we're being told. Like, hey, go slow. Focus on mental health. Focus on your focus on you know being well. And you're like, great. Yeah, I thank you. I I need to hear that message. And you're right. And you know things are challenging. But all, you almost get an email right after that one. It's like your dad is due on Friday. Like, like you you still have this job. You still have to do all the parts of the job. And you're like, yeah. What about all that stuff about go slow? And you're like. It's, it's, it doesn't go like that. You, you can't go slow. You have to do your job. You got to go at the speed you got to go. It's like, I'm being, I'm being told to go slow and go at the same speed at the same time. I don't know what to do. And you just wind up trying your best. And it's, uh, I don't know, man. Like I, I have to psych myself up and tell myself that my best this year is good enough, even though it's not what it would have been in a past year. But in past years, I'm not sanitizing the damn semicircle table every 22 minutes. Do you know what I mean? Like everything is taking more energy and kids are, kids are staying home from school when they've got the sniffles, which I love. I appreciate that. I need that. But then now you got holes in your grade book and you're like, that, that sucks. You can't catch everyone up on everything every time. So it just feels like I'm letting go of lots of stuff and I know that that's just what you got to do to get through this year, but um, it's really hard. That's fair to say. It's just it's just challenging. I, I hope it doesn't sound like whining, though. Yeah, that's my biggest fear, right? Is that this comes across as whining, and that's that's you know, like I'm I'm grateful for the the work I'm able to do. Um, Same. Like if if anyone hears a hint of you know um, disgrace, is, is that the word I'm looking for? Disgrace? No, it's. I'm, I'm completely grateful for this job entirely. And I'm, I'm glad to have anyone call me on it someday. Um, if it seems like I'm not grateful, but it is, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's tough to work in any it's tough to work right now, period. But, um, I think when you work in a school where the stakes are this high, 
yeah, it's, it's challenging. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, it's, it's, uh, how, how have you been finding work? Like, do you see kids online? Um, or are you only teaching kids in person? I'm only teaching kids in person, but that'll change on, you know, the fourth. Um, my class in particular will be fine online. We've used a lot of technology this year. My classes needs, um, for tech at home is it's not great. I'm in a, I'm very blessed. So for me, I think this next week or two weeks or whatever it happens to be for our board, I will be fine. But, uh, yeah, across the board, I don't know. It's not the same. You know, we didn't have a lot of time to set up this time around, did we? No, no, there's no time, frankly. Like we, and we got the, you know, the, the Monday when we return is, I guess, designated. The board is has designated it as like a a prep day with a staff meeting, and we're going to receive instructions, and then we're supposed to be able to make those instructions turn them into action the following day. And like, there's going to be people who have been sort of running it running the playbook as usual and aren't prepared to go paperless and aren't prepared to be online and to be digital. And, uh, they're going to have some real challenges. Um, and then like, you know, like I, I, I'm a bit of a technophobe, but I have been able this year, I've, I've gone paperless. I've made a real commitment to doing that. And yeah, um, yeah and I, you know, it's, I don't, I don't think my practice suffers for it at all. Um, and frankly, like, you know, I, I'm happy not to be, using paper uh, as prodigiously as I did when I started and I was making booklets because I wanted the kids to read things. There's a lot of benefits to being able to use technology and post readings and um, it eliminates the need for, for all the paperwork. Um, so there are some hidden benefits, but the, the, the drawbacks are is that like with, and I know that the rest of the working world knows this, but like you feel like you're always on call and that you never get to stop working. And, and what I really have concerns about is when, you know, when the, when does my school day end and when does my home life begin? And, you know, like you have to designate the dining room for a few hours as an office until the kids are ready to eat their lunch. And then it has to turn into a, a lunch table for the kids. And then it has to turn back into a classroom. And like, meanwhile, they're working. And it's just the, it's the logistics of getting all of that to work is really daunting. You breeders and your breeder problems. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, I we set up that little office we talked about earlier. So I got two screens, a decent mic, a little space carved out in my house. Um, I think my problem is the opposite. I I could overwork, and I don't know. I don't know when to shut shut it down. I don't know. Like you have the obvious. You have two kids that will tell you when it's time to do something different because their needs are loud because that's the way that kids are. I feel like I could fall into the same old stupid shitty habit of just working until the work is done and the work never ends when you're online. That can suck. And if there's no one here, if my wife's at work that day and the dogs don't bother me that day, I could sit here and crush a whole day of sitting in front of the computer, crushing every notification that comes up. And then the next day, doesn't matter because more come and no one's keeping track of, Oh, Mr. Page did really well on Tuesday, but you know, Wednesday he really dropped off like that shit. That's in my head all the time when I'm teaching from home. So I think I might need to just like set office hours and keep myself on schedule the way I would throughout a regular school day. Yeah. Well, and it's the, the notion of like teaching synchronously 
um, will will be of benefit to you because you're going to you're going to have set times. There's going to be a time where they join you online and then there's going to be a time where you say, OK, your day is done and off you go. That's Whereas, right. like, you know, if, if I'm doing asynchronous work, then I am working with the kids while they're doing their schoolwork and then checking in where I can on my classes and then, you know, on off hours, once the kids are down for bed after say 7 PM, now it's, now I got to go to work. So I'm working like a night job instead of a day job. I, I don't know exactly. Um, go, but I, we'll just find out when we get there, I guess. Isn't that what you more or less did last year? Like when distance learning happened, you guys were. Well, the, the expectations were different in the spring because it, you know, yeah. we were, it was asynchronous and it was, we got told, you know, the grades couldn't change. So essentially whatever they had, and, and we were in a semestered system and not a quad system. So it was basically, even though we were only five weeks in or four weeks in, it was whatever they have is what they, they can't do worse than this. And so, and I was teaching some senior courses, so it was pretty easy just to sort of um, pop some readings up and then be available to answer questions throughout the week and the kids could get to it. The whole, the whole messaging was don't expect them to work on a daily basis. Get hope that whatever they do is, um, whatever they do is benefit, but they can't hurt them. A lot of them just sort of walked away and didn't do anything because they knew their grades couldn't go down. Only the really engaged kids continued to work. And so it wasn't particularly demanding in terms of personal time. This, it, but that was because it was asynchronous, synchronous teaching where we all have to meet and I have to put on a, a two and a half hour show twice a day is a, is an entirely different ball game. Um, you know, to, to, to fill that, that time. Cause ultimately like, you know, in a classroom, you give them time to work on things and time to read things. But, you know, with the, 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 the messages from the, the board and the ministry that, you know, instructional time is so key. Like, does that mean that we are teaching, performing, lecturing for two and a half straight hours? Or are we able to no. give time to work on things? Like it's just, but like I, I, here we are, it's, it's uh, almost the end of 2020. And, you know, we've been working at this in this way for all these months and I still don't really have a clear answer. Like you say, no, but it's still not clear exactly what the expectations are. Yeah, I'm just saying what I won't do. Like I, I'm the way I see it, man. Like we'll be in the classroom, but in our house. So whatever you would normally have done, normally in my classroom during literacy, there's a wheel on the board that tells each group what they're supposed to be doing for that period. I turn the wheel each time, and then your job changes each time. I I'll be doing that. Sorry, this group is doing a reading response. Here's, you know, you, you've got your reading material. Here's your response form. Go for it. This group over here, you're meeting with me. We're looking into your writing assignment, which is posted on Monday. So that's what we're doing. You're working on this math assignment. So pitter-patter, let's get at her. Like, I won't have anything change. And I'm not going to stand there and stand and deliver for two and a half hours every day just because something's different. You wouldn't like, I wouldn't teach that way in an elementary classroom where you just stand there and talk and it's up to them to take notes. So why the hell would we do it now? You know, yeah, and like with, with elementary kids, like you've got to change the program. What? Like every, every 10 or 15 minutes, you got to give them some, some new thing to do before you lose their attention. I find with uh, kids in grade six and seven, at least th this group of kids anyway, I could probably stretch them out to 25 minutes stamina and then switch their job. Um, 
So yeah, 20, 25 minutes is about as long as I ask them to focus on a thing at a time. And then I give them a new chunk or give them the second chunk of that same job. But yeah, they're not capable of going on for hour and a half. Although sometimes they surprise me if I tell them like, Hey, here's your project. And you have until this time to work on it. It blows my mind with this group, how focused they stay on that job. Like I kind of expect the last seven minutes before recess to sort of really taper off. And what I see is kids just head down the whole time, you know, fingers going the whole time and they don't stop until it's time to time to stop. So pretty lucky this year, man. That's great. So that sounds like a good group of kids. I won't lie. I've been lucky. This is like my third year in a row of being pretty lucky with the group of kids that I get, but yeah, they're, uh, they're special. They're probably special. Yeah, that sounds good. You know what else is special, Matt? What's that? My time with you. <laughs> this has been good. This is, I'm, I'm looking at the clock here. We're coming up on ninety minutes, man. I don't. I I would imagine many of our listeners have left left by now. No. <laughs> all fifteen listeners listen to all of the episode. They all do. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Why don't we Why don't we shut it down now and. Uh, yeah, work on work on that editing piece because I'm just gonna throw it. Out. I don't care, Matt. You got that new exciting uh, microphone, and I think that you'd be a fantastic podcaster on your own. You, you always seem to add to my episodes that you're a part of. But um, I'm excited for you to get your own show. So I sort of wanted us to record this episode together because a, I just like spending time with you, like I said, but b. I think it'd be good for you to see what the the editing process looks like and everything. So, you know, I'm sort of throwing it out there that maybe you and I can edit this episode together and you'll have a clear idea of how to go about your own show when you get it going. So what you're talking about editing, can, can you make me sound like George Clooney? I cannot do that oh. because I can't even seem Man, to make I myself. To learn. I, I, I can't even fix my own prepubescent voice. So <laughs> well, been, The pleasure has been all mine, Rick. I'm happy to be here with you for sure. Well, I, I, you know, if I can't have you on my side on the political campaign trail, I'm happy to have you on my side with with a podcast that you, me, and my mom will listen to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, buddy. I love your whole family. You guys take it easy, and uh, thanks for your time, man. Later, man.